Hello there, listeners, and welcome to Episode 5 of Outer Rim Reads, a podcast that journeys chapter by chapter through various Star Wars novels, both in Legends and Canon. My name is Andrew Geha, and I'm your host along this journey. In this episode, we will continue through Star Wars Thrawn, covering chapters 9 and 10, and I am joined today by Chad Walton, the creator of the Star Wars blog Hyperspace and Holocrons. Chad, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing today? Doing great. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Just to give the listeners a background on um, how you were introduced to Star Wars and your background with Star Wars and with Thrawn as a character and also specifically with this book, could you just give a little bit of your background with the Star Wars? universe and with Thrawn? Oh, sure, absolutely. Growing up, I was eight years old when I first went to the theater and saw Empire Strikes Back, saw Yoda on the screen and <laughs> fell in love immediately, uh, as you can imagine an eight-year-old child would do, and then just grew up with a saga. I remember back 1983, standing in line for Return of the Jedi, and of course, I was well, I was 11 years old then, so uh, it's been a little while. Yeah. So, of course, with Thrawn, when the Heir to the Empire trilogy came out, the Thrawn trilogy, we didn't know what to expect. So to see that such a character would just come out of nowhere was pretty mind-blowing is really the only phrase I could use for it. Yeah, uh, it was just such an intellectual character, and you don't expect to see that in what's largely an action movie. Definitely. So, you know, you bring that out of the saga, and you have this super, your intellectual being that just thinks of things that nobody else does and sees things that nobody else does before they happen and it it was very intriguing for sure definitely he, he definitely uh, stands out from most of the imperial villains that we've been introduced to uh, before his time and also since then um, he, he really is unique in the way that he can see the bigger picture and, and break down his enemies and be able to calculate their every move uh, definitely a fascinating villain and a very well done character uh, I would have to agree with you I've read two of the Legends trilogy books so far and i am just started on the last one uh, The Last Command I think and I've just been really impressed with what Timothy Zahn has done with his character and and it just adds a more complete picture to the character that we have in this book. Like knowing what he came from. I know that that's legends now, and technically it doesn't, you know, doesn't count, quote unquote. But it's fun to see how fans knew him from before, as compared to with this book. And I, I haven't been disappointed. And judging by how you were speaking about Thrawn, I think that you're not disappointed with his character in the slightest uh, either. Not at all. Um, I mean, the facts are a little bit different because of yeah. uh, Disney canon versus legends but if you really boil it down it's the same character yeah uh, thrawn is the same person that he was back then so you know it's easier to accept yeah definitely and it, it's been fun to see the connections where uh, i think i've talked about this on previous episodes where he we've seen a little bit so far about how his relationship with artwork and also reading about that in the legends trilogy and just seeing how that carried over to the character that that we know in the canon trilogy like you said he's the same guy um and it's fun that we get like this look into a part of his life that we had no insight into beforehand so definitely a very intriguing villain and i will say that he's probably one of if not my favorite characters in all of star wars i'll get us stuck into chapter nine. I've got a summary right here and then we can just break it down and talk about what happened. Sounds good. Thrawn and Eli explained the events that unfolded on the Dromodar to an irate Captain Rossi. Although they had been held at Blaster Point, Thrawn had been confident that they could save the Dromodar's crew. However, Rossi suspends Thrawn and Eli from duty, 
telling them they should have prioritized the Tibana cylinders over the crew's lives. Thrawn informs Eli that he plans to interrogate the pirate prisoners in order to discover who they work for and the location of the valuable Tibana cylinders. Thrawn offers the pirates a deal. He will give them a civilian transport to escape on in exchange for the name of the system to where the Tibana was taken. The pirates agree to the deal, although they intend to warn Angel anyway. Because of the interrogation being unauthorized by the ISB, Thrawn risks possibly being court-martialed. The Imperials plan to recapture the Tabana and the pirates. So there's a lot that goes on in this chapter. I'm going to read us through part of the uh, internal monologue because I think that speaks a lot to the initial events of the chapter with their interaction with Captain Rossi. So I'm just going to read that now. And I quote, A great tactician creates plans. A good tactician recognizes the soundness of a plan presented to him. A fair tactician must see the plan succeed before offering approval. Those with no tactical ability at all may never understand or accept it, nor will such people understand or accept the tactician. To those without that ability, those who possess it are a mystery. And when a mind is too deficient in understanding, the resulting gap is often filled with resentment. And I think that sets up this opening interaction with Captain Rossi perfectly. Where basically Thrawn and Eli are telling her what happened uh, on the Dromedar and that they saved the crew's lives. And that they, although they had lost the Tabana cylinders, they were able to save the lives of the Dromedar's original crew. And Captain Rossi is in full resentment mode at, at, oh, yeah. at Thrawn's tact. I mean, we've already disliked her so far. <laughs> I mean, it's, yeah. it's hard not to. I was really shocked at this scene where she ends up suspending them from duty because they prioritized saving lives over saving the Tabana cylinders. Did you have any thoughts or reactions to this opening scene where she's just becoming more and more of a hateable character where, yeah, she's prioritizing credits over human lives? Well, and that's really a staple of being an Imperial. Definitely. I mean, if you look at everything in the movie, they don't care about the crew. It's all about getting Luke Skywalker or, you know, whoever it is in, in that particular story. So to me, it wasn't surprising, but it was more like an echo of any number of, you know, political actions that we see in the world. I don't want to get too much into politics, but, you know, <laughs> wherever you go, what, whichever side of the fence you're on, it's not specific to any one event, but as politics as a whole. And I think that's really what you see here is, you know, Rossi, like you said, is very resentful towards Thrawn. Obviously, he's an alien, and we know how Imperials yeah. pretty much feel about it. Aliens. So, <laughs> I think you have that aspect of it. And, you know, there's the fact that Thrawn garners so much respect that she feels she deserves and not getting. So, she feels a little bit upstaged by Thrawn. Yeah. It's very interesting to see the thought processes of, of Captain Rossi, where she probably feels threatened by Thrawn, where he is garnering a lot of respect from the crew, and he succeeded in this mission that... Uh, she had totally been banking on him failing. And, you know, she, technically she found a way to turn that on him where, yeah, he, he lost maybe hundreds of thousands of credits worth of Tabana gas. But it's this this jealousy and this envy of Thrawn. And we're seeing, like you said, exactly how Rossi is acting here speaks to a lot about that image of an Imperial officer that we have expected, where she's valuing money and, you know, maybe like political gain over human lives. 
where she sure. doesn't care about the if, if they save the Dromedar's crew. She she saw an opportunity that they missed out on rescuing these Tabana cylinders, and she's just gone in for the kill. And it's really shocking. The moment where Rossi turns the tables on Eli and Thrawn, where she says that they made the wrong choice by saving the crew over the Tabana, we see an interesting reaction from Thrawn. And I'm going to quote here. Thrawn says, We saved the crew, ma'am, he said, sounding as confused as Eli had ever seen him. And, you know, we know whose priorities are wrong in this situation. You know, clearly Thrawn did the right thing by choosing to save lives over the Tabana gas. And we've seen little emotion from him so far, much less confusion. Yet in the face of like Rossi going after him over valuing lives over cargo, Thrawn's kind of stumped here, which I thought was surprising, but totally justified. And I think it speaks to his morals and maybe Rossi's lack thereof. I don't know if I would say morals necessarily, but motivation. And, And I think his motivation is, hey, I can save a valuable crew. And oh, by the way, I know I can go get the gas later. So, you know, not a big deal. And that's the unspoken thing in that chapter to me is Thrawn's already thinking, oh, okay, we can catch up with the gas and all this. Not a big deal, but let's save the crew first. So I don't know that Thrawn really has morals outside Mm. of his uh, loyalty to the Chiss. I think he sees the, the Empire as... A means to an end and that's the difference really i think that's what we're seeing when we say morals or is he's not like the other imperials very much i mean that is a fair point as we'll see how the chapter turns out where he's able to then pursue angel insignia where they transported the tabana he's able to like you said first he saves the crew and then he's also able to go get the tabana or at least plan to do so so yeah that's a fair point where it's maybe not so much of a moral thing as it's just choosing which step as part of a calculated plan to approach first. Thrawn always thinks in terms of efficiency and efficacy. He wants the most uh, efficient route and the most effective route. If you lose a whole crew, then you lose people that are A, loyal to you, B, you know what they're about and you know how they're going to go about their business yeah then you have to train a whole new crew and get them doing things the way that you know you're expected for things to run and that takes a lot of time so i I think that's really where his mindset is is hey these are valuable assets yeah and that's totally fair i mean he's been calculating and seeing things from a cold and calculating factual emotionless standpoint rather than maybe he didn't actually care about saving each individual life but like you said it it would have been yeah less efficient if they hadn't for for the reason that you just said that's a good point but he yeah he does set himself apart from imperials in that if it had been any other imperial officer they would have probably done things way differently and prioritized the tabana instead of thinking about the bigger picture with okay both saving lives as well as being able to pursue the cylinders and we see more of this calculating side of Thrawn here where Rossi has suspended him from duty and Eli is shocked at this like he, he, he was thinking you know what the hell is happening and Thrawn he kind of plays Rossi here and he says and I quote I'm certain Ensign Vanto will be of great value to you on the remainder of the patrol because initially Rossi had just suspended Thrawn from duty and hadn't mentioned Eli and then of course after he says that 
Rossi's like, oh, yeah, by the way, Eli, you know, you're also suspended too, um, which is, we can guess, and and we find out that's exactly what Thrawn wanted in the situation, though I Classic doubt... reverse psychology. Exactly, reverse psychology. I mean, Rossi probably didn't even realize it, and she also hasn't realized the previous moments when she's just gotten totally played by Thrawn. And Eli also didn't know what was going on here, and he's got some resentment for Thrawn in this moment too, where all of a sudden he's also suspended from uh, active duty with Thrawn. But that was just a, a, little, a brilliant little move by Thrawn, just again showing how superior he is to Captain Rossi. 5D chess. 5D chess, yes. Yeah, we're <laughs> skipping 4D. Yeah, he's just on the 40. next level. <laughs> Absolutely. And I gotta say, Eli is probably one of my favorite characters in the new Thrawn trilogy. One, because I think he probably sounds a lot like I do. (laughs) Because they talk about how he has a wild space accent, and obviously I have a southern accent, being from Georgia. Oh, nice. I'm from Georgia as well. (laughs) Oh, awesome. But yeah, I mean, I kind of... I see a lot of myself in Eli by the way he acts. A lot of his frustration is exactly that. It's frustration from not understanding, not knowing. I hear his character sounding a lot like I do. So <laughs> He is on many different levels a very relatable character. I think that's exactly Zahn's intention. That's how he intends him to be and, and just does, does a brilliant job with it. We see, because you know, we probably would feel the same frustrations and um, have the same mannerisms and thought processes as, as Eli. And I just think that the more relatable of a character we have as an insight into Thrawn, it just makes it better of a story for for the reader to have that connection with Eli, who then has a close connection with Thrawn. And just it's, it's nice having a relatable character um, as one of the main point of view characters in, in the book. So Thrawn and Eli get suspended. Rossi leaves and Eli is seething at Thrawn right now. And we get this little bit of insight into Eli's thoughts here where he's thinking maybe a little bit short-sighted, where initially he's thinking that maybe just Thrawn manipulated Rossi for the fun of it, just to get Eli there with him, and just manipulated her because why not? But then he follows that up with maybe the first instance that we've gotten in his point of view that he's aware that Thrawn might be planning something for him. He doesn't realize what exactly his specific skill set has that's appealing to Thrawn, but we get this little bit where he's wondering, and I quote, or was there something else going on with Thrawn's glowing red eyes? Could it be that he was so afraid of losing his aid that he didn't dare let Rossi or anyone else aboard the Blood Crow see what Eli could actually do? And I thought that was a really great point where, yeah, this is the first time that we maybe see Eli realizing that he's possibly part of something greater than he can see in the moment. Yes, and and then, not to get too far ahead, but immediately after that thought process, Thrawn almost literally verbatim states exactly yeah. what he's thinking so <laughs> I mean, it's, it's classic uh sherlock holmes and watson yeah i mean it really <laughs> is he's like ah but elementary my dear watson you know. that's so good because we I, I thought of thrawn as kind of like a sherlock in the star wars but i never actually thought of eli as being a watson type character but that's i mean a, and we see as this scene plays out where they start to plan together where his resentment is replaced with understanding that yeah, I like that comparison. That um, <laughs> get our get our own I, it, imperial Sherlock and and Watson, and it's, especially when you get into the conversation with Wakafus, yeah, Wakafus, yeah. Uh, yeah, his name, <laughs> Wakafus, is that? I think Wiscovis, Wiscovis, I think. Yeah, that's the thing with Zahn. You're going to get some names that you're just going to yeah. trip horribly <laughs> over, like with Thrawn's <laughs> actual name, like the whole Mithranurodo. <laughs> yeah, like a whole mouthful. Exactly, exactly. But Eli's sitting there with the uh, admiral and saying, 
Uh, no, sir. I think he means this. So he he's catching on to the plan as he goes. Yeah. He's like, no, this is what he's trying to do. So, it's, yeah, I love Eli. Yeah, it's fun to see also how, because I think starting in last chapter where he was starting to think in the bigger picture in relation to his conversations with Rossi and also aboard the Dromedar and helping out Thrawn, he's starting to grow into his shoes a little bit more. And we do see a lot of that in this chapter as well. So we can assume with Eli's thoughts and also with possibly with Thrawn's hints that, yes, Eli's part of a bigger plan that Thrawn's got. They start conversing between themselves where, okay, Eli's accepted. All right, you know, we're going to be confined to um, Admiral Wiskovis on Anshin. That's where they're being dropped off or their uh, suspension. They're just confined to Wiskovis's uh, imperial headquarters there. They start to go over what they know about the Tibana situation. And Thrawn plays this really well, where he just asks Eli, and I quote, tell me, what do we already know? And Eli responds with pretty much nothing as he waves his hand. And Thrawn just remains silent from there. And, and I quote, Eli clenched his teeth. Fine, he said with a sigh, another game that Thrawn was very good at. And this is a great moment where whether Eli might like it or not, we see an instance here of Thrawn just grooming him for whatever he's got planned for him here, where he's asking Eli, all right, just let's go over what we know. Let's fill in the pieces. I know the answers, but I'm not going to just give them to you because that's that's too easy. And this is part of Eli's growth here, where Thrawn is trying to get Eli to fill in this potential and have him not just rely on Thrawn to break down the situations and this knowledge about what they know and where they can move from there, but also having Eli play an active role in understanding that himself. Exactly. And and this is, again, another clue that Thrawn already was thinking about the Tabana gas in the conversation with Rossi. Yep. It's almost like, you know, well, let's just let her hang herself, you know, let's give her enough rope, <laughs> make her typical imperial move of valuing things over people and loyalty, and we'll let her do that, and then we're going to do the real work. Yeah, exactly, and and that's exactly what they get on to do, where, you know, like, like you said, Rossi might think that she has the win in the small game, but Eli and Thrawn, especially Thrawn, they're just playing the long game, and it, oh, yeah. it ends up paying off. So in their conversation, they are able to determine the... Uh, the vector to which the Dromadar with Angel and Signy might have left uh, the pirate ship at, and they're able, in their conversation, they, they're trying to narrow down where they think that the Tabana cylinders were taken. And Thrawn tells Eli that he is planning to interrogate the three pirates they had incapacitated on the, uh, the pirate ship, because the Empire is sending an interrogator from the uh, Imperial Security Bureau, the ISB. They're sending an interrogator to interrogate the pirates, and Thrawn is trying to get there first, which he knows he's not supposed to do, and he's going to obviously put this by Admiral Wiscovis and see if he'll get approved, but he's going to try and interrogate them and see what they can get. And he tells Eli that he needs him there for two reasons, that Eli would monitor the interrogation, and Thrawn says, and I quote, there may be a point where you will be uniquely useful. And <laughs> this, the second point, and I quote, for what I'm planning, I may need a witness, he said quietly. You, Ensign Vanto, will be that witness. And I thought that was a really suspenseful moment because we're wondering, okay, first of all, how is Eli going to be uniquely useful in that situation? And then what the heck is Thrawn planning here <laughs> that he that he needs a witness? And he just says that in the, kind of like this suspenseful way. And it's like, you will be that witness. 5D chess. 5D chess. <laughs> and... <laughs> 
in the interrogation in this next scene when he's interrogating these pirates, we see that on full display. So the interrogation in this chapter is in Thrawn's point of view. So he's got the three pirates that they had incapacitated to uh, come into the interrogation room. And there's a transparent barrier that's between him, where he's standing asking the questions, and the pirates. And so he starts it off with this brilliant quote (laughs) where he says, and I quote, we have a saying, grasp the useful, let the useless fly. You three are the useless. (laughs) What a way to start that interrogation. (laughs) Just cold and calculating. I mean, no emotion. You know, like I said, assets. Yeah. (laughs) And he's letting them know. (laughs) I love how one of the pirates just yells back at him. And I quote, and you can go plop yourself straight back to Pantorus as one of the pirates. And even when he's trying to insult Thrawn, like Thrawn's not a Pantorian. So he, he just totally swung and missed in his insult but you know he doesn't know that and it's just a funny moment for us where it's like yeah yeah champ you you kind of failed that one didn't you uh- <laughs> and, and there's also the other element that you can get out of that is that Thrawn knows that especially humans which I don't know if the pirates are necessarily humans or not mm. but in general beings are most honest when they're emotional yeah so if he can get a rise out of them they may say something that gives him clues about who they are. That is a brilliant point there, because the first part of this interrogation, yeah, he's kind of playing on their emotions a bit, where he ends up telling them, you know, there's a reason that you were left behind on the pirate ship while the other crew were taken on the Dromedar. You know, clearly you guys are expendable. Don't you see that? And he and he starts to see some, like, uh, you know, facial glow intensifying in the pirates, and, you know, they're getting kind of riled up by the fact that, he, you know, he's calling them useless. He's saying, also, your superior thinks you're useless as well. That's why he left you behind. And he also kind of, he plays a card that strikes a bit of a fear factor in these pirates where he makes this connection. He asserts to them that, and I quote, on the contrary, I am impressed that successors of the pirate queen Kana still operate throughout the galaxy. And so he is throwing out this name of a former pirate queen who we find out has since been killed to see if they react to that name where he's guessing that that's exactly who they, the organization, the group that they're part of is related to this pirate queen Kana. And he follows that up with bringing in the name drop of Grand Moff Tarkin, which I love that point. Um, (laughs) But he says that he basically kind of drops this threat where he tells them that he's reached out to Grand Moff Tarkin, who was one of the Pirate Queen Kana's famous old enemies. And, you know, he's not going to deal too kindly with any remnants of her pirate organization. So we have a little bit of some uh, some veiled insults and not so veiled insults going on from Thrawn. But then also he's kind of striking some fear in their hearts right now by dropping the name of the infamous Grand Moff Tarkin. Did you think anything of, uh, of that little moment? I thought that was a great name drop for anyone who's, you know, seen uh, A New Hope and is familiar with Tarkin as a whole. Oh, absolutely. Anytime you invoke the name Tarkin, it's it's just an awesome reference. But the thing that I really got out of that part is it's where I was coming from with the conversation with Rossi that Thrawn knew where she was going to go because there's no time gap. It was immediately after that conversation that they went to the interrogation. Yeah. So he had already done all this research to find Kana as the name and connect it and what that background was. He had already done the whole history on this. So he had researched it 
And I really think you probably guided Rossi to make that statement about, well, you should have went after the gas instead. He's so far ahead, it's not even funny. That would be a great little bit if he, if this had just been part of his plan the whole time, which, I mean, at this point, I'm not going to doubt him. <laughs> if we've no, learned anything right now. For sure. Yeah, the strategist, manipulator, calculator, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he's, he's just playing his cards really great right now. Where, yeah, he's, he tells them he's contacted Tarkin. He's on his way. And, you know, either Tarkin can show up and deal with them or they can accept the deal that he proceeds to offer them. And he basically, he, he offers them this deal that he'll offer them a partially derelict civilian transport and they can escape the system They'll be able to reach the next system before they need to make any repairs on it, but they'll be able to escape. In return, that they'll give him the name of the system that Signy and Angel took the Dromadar. And he lets them sit with this offer. And I love this little paragraph that follows when they are uh, starting to discuss amongst themselves, and I'm going to quote it now. Thrawn had played all his cards, but the pirates had a card of their own to play. Leaning close, they began speaking softly together in a language they would have learned growing up in wild space, a language that was only used there and in the unknown regions, a language that had never been programmed into Republic or Imperial translators or protocol droids, a language they could reasonably expect no Imperial had ever heard of. Cybisty. <laughs> and as soon as we find out that they think they're duping Thrawn by conversing and scheming amongst themselves by speaking in Cybisty, we're just like, all right, yep. Yeah. <laughs> they are... <laughs> <laughs> it's just they just get foiled before they even know it <laughs> exactly and i like it that again 5d chess this was planned from before the chapter even started <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it's we're just seeing that unfold and they you know it's unbeknownst to them they have no clue they think they're in charge you know they think that thrawn's played all of his cards but thrawn's probably sitting back to himself with this just grim satisfaction as he and he, he probably knows he probably can guess where they're from and that, oh, that's knows. the language that they would know which also eli is in kind of we assume like a back room because uh, he's been sending messages to thrawn's data pad like confirming information that the pirates are giving kind of monitoring the interrogation and eli knows Cybisti, so that's probably also another reason that Thrawn has Eli uh, over there. Um, that's the primary reason I would say is you know, that's his uniquely useful. Is yeah. he knew he knew where these pirates were from. Yeah, and he was like, ah, Eli's from Wild Space. He's gonna know what they're gonna speak. He knew when he offered a deal, just like in every other crime drama you ever see. <laughs> You know, if there's co-conspirators, they're going to discuss and some kind of code. And he was prepared for it. And that's why he had Eli there to translate. Yeah, the code is broken before they even realize it. So, exactly. um, but when they're talking amongst themselves, they don't know that Thrawn knows what they're saying. And they say that they're going to take the deal, but they're going to fake it go off and warn Angel about, yo, you've got some Imperials headed your way. So they're pretty much deciding to double-cross Thrawn while feigning taking the deal. And they end up telling Thrawn that Signe and Angel went to a city called Catherston on the planet Katum. And Thrawn recognizes, all right, that's probably a bluff, but he knows that. It's, they're just probably giving him a, a name that might be random, but also might not be random. And yeah, they, they take the deal. They leave the room and then... A little side door opens and enter Admiral Wiscovis and Eli. And they were able to narrow down the planet where the Dromadar is, where Eli was, uh, the whole time he was analyzing the wild space slang that the pirates were using to narrow down the possibility of where the Dromadar was, 
And Thrawn also guessed, it, it was a total guess at them being associated with the late pirate queen Kana, based on a term that we had heard in one of the previous chapters um, that I had pronounced in an episode, uh, Kulos, but Thrawn mm. had heard that word as Kulis. And he had said that he sounded it out like Kulis or a group without a Q and figured that that would be the most likely pirate group with a Q reference that also had the resources to deal with the stolen Tabana. So he already knew this coming in like you had said 5d chess he's miles ahead and we're all just gathering that in right now and just totally in awe aren't we and i tell you this i can give you a little side tidbit that i got from dragon con i actually asked mr zahn about that really about the word nice i was like well we read that thrawn says that he heard it as Qless. i said so why spell it as q loss and he said honestly he said throw off the reader yeah, <laughs> and and that he did. <laughs> I got. So, I mean, if he, and, and and it made sense to me then because if he had spelt it as Q less, yeah, you know, we would have never wondered as much. I guess. I mean, you could still wonder about yeah what the Q stands for, but it doesn't hit you the same as it does when you read it in this chapter. Exactly. It's like it seems like this totally unrelated word. And that, again, just speaks to Thrawn's brilliance, where he heard it in a specific way. You know, he didn't see how it was spelled, but he heard it. And that's, yeah, just it's not even to throw off Thrawn in that moment. It's just to throw off the reader. So um, right. props to Timothy Zahn. Also, that's totally awesome that you, uh, you got to ask him that. That's so cool. I hope to go to DragonCon uh, one day. Here, it's a really great experience. It definitely is. It's well worth it. Yeah. Star Wars track is amazing. They do a really great job with that. Yeah, I've only heard great things. I uh, Galaxy's Edge and DragonCon, I really want to just be able to go to at some point. So Eli and Admiral Wiscovis enter the room, and Wiscovis says that he, you know he'd watched Thrawn kind of manage the whole situation there, and maybe he's trying to regain some of his admiral pride when he says you know that he'd like to be the one to release the pirates' transport himself. But then Thrawn stops him, saying, "I quote, I cannot allow you to do that." And which he you know he immediately bristles up at that, and Eli jumps in quickly, saying that I think what he meant is that it would be best for you to be as far removed from this situation as possible in case of any blowback. And my question to you is, is that a case of Thrawn losing out in translation with his, you know, kind of quote-unquote limited basic skills, or is that quick thinking from Eli? I think it's kind of Thrawn playing his cards a little close to the vest. It's a setup, obviously. I mean, because Thrawn does everything for a reason. And obviously he wants to say, hey, I'm protecting you without saying I'm protecting you so that you aren't involved in it. Yeah, and that's what they're trying to, or at least what what Eli keeps insisting to to Wiscovis, and he he's got his pride standing in the way where he he he's unhappy with what they're trying to do. But it makes sense because it was an unauthorized interrogation. You know, he, he probably should have gotten clearance from the ISB, um, but he jumped in anyway. And so he is, and and Wiscovis tells him that he's now put himself at risk for uh, being court-martialed. And, you know, it's smart from Thrawn and Eli's there to clarify it to Wiscovis that, yeah, this is for your good. Whether you can see that or not, it's best if you're just as much out of the situation as possible in case it goes bad. And Wiscovis tries to fight back saying, well, what if it, what if it goes well? You know, Thrawn's going to be the only one with a credit here. And then Thrawn reassures him, I will give you all the credit. But if it goes poorly and he gets court-martialed, Thrawn says that he will have Eli testify that Thrawn acted alone, which... He's willing to have Eli commit perjury for the sake of protecting Wiscovis. And Eli did not know this 
coming in. But I think he does a really great job of just rolling with the conversation, even when he totally was not expecting Thrawn to be like, and yeah, I'll have Eli over here commit perjury for your sake. Yeah, and I think that's, again, as you uh, referenced before, is uh, Eli's growth as a character is he's learning more about Thrawn and how Thrawn operates, so he's able to better interpret it. He's not quite at 5D chess, but, you know, he's he still understands. Yeah, he understands where Thrawn's going with this, and the fact that, okay, you got Captain Rossi hot after him. Obviously, she doesn't like him at all. So if you can get in the good graces of an admiral, that might pay off later. Exactly. And it's just a perfectly played situation. Uh, and props to Eli here for quick thinking. Um, and, he, and he does a really great job of kind of, you know, he's doing his best to subdue the temper of Wiscovis here. I mean, and Thrawn's just taking it because he, he knows exactly what he's doing here. And Eli is doing a really great job of uh, thinking on his feet, which Thrawn's probably proud of. So after Wiscovis kind of brushes that aside, he's like, all right, we've narrowed down the planet where the Dromedar is taken. They decide to send a task force there, as well as to the city Catherston that the pirates had mentioned, because Thrawn states that it was probably a bluff, but they came up with the name of Catherston on Katem too quickly for it to be just a random possibility. So they decide to send a force there as well, which is great thinking by Thrawn. I don't think it was intentional, and maybe it was. I, I you know, We'd have to ask uh, Timothy Zahn for sure, but it kind of echoes the interrogation of oh. uh, Princess Leia by Tarkin where she gives the planet of Dantooine. Yeah. And Tarkin goes, ah, okay, we know that it's not really there. We'll send somebody there anyway, but yeah, we're just going to go ahead and blow up Alderaan. Yeah. So. That's a great parallel. <laughs> Which now, is, I don't know if it was intentional, but when I read it, that's the first thing I thought of. Yeah, it's got some definitely some connections there, and also the fact that you know Tarkin was name-dropped in the same chapter, so maybe there was some inspiration there. But I think it ends on a pretty... This chapter ends on a pretty funny note where Wiscovis asks Thrawn if he actually had contacted Tarkin, and Thrawn says, and I quote, No, I have never met the man. <laughs> and I thought that was so perfectly played by Thrawn that he knew that the pirates would have this fear of Tarkin giving his history with the pirate queen Kana and he hadn't even met the man but he just played it so well where he was speaking as if he knew him as if he was on the way he played those cards so well and just a a, a great chapter for Thrawn's strategy and his cunning and his his calculating I thought this it, it was a funny moment but also just a great moment where wow yeah he played that perfectly Yep, Sherlock Holmes and Watson. He's I mean, just yeah. classic. <laughs> so that ends chapter nine, um, and I'll uh, I'll get us started with chapter ten summary, and we'll dive into uh, dive into that one. Unless you had any closing thoughts on this chapter? Not really. I think we pretty much covered it all. All right. Well, let's get stuck into chapter ten. Arinda Price and her friend Wahir Madras plan to go to the federal district for Ascension Week an annual celebration culminating in Empire Day. Price is determined to make more political connections to further her rise to power. Price and Wahir can stay with Wahir's friend, Driller, who lives close to Core Square, if Price can get them into an exclusive party. Price, Wahir, and Driller attend a party at the Alessandra Hotel, where they see Senator Ranking, ISB Colonel Yularen, Thrawn, and Eli. Curious to the presence of a non-human naval officer, Price cleverly joins their conversation. Ranking assigns Price to deliver a data card to Moff Gotti. 
Gotti takes Price to his personal suite where he transfers the card to his datapad. However, Price notices Gotti gave her a different card to return to ranking, and Gotti proceeds to spray her with a highly illegal Polston Spice. This was, you know, we have obviously reintroduced to the character of Arenda Price, who is now solidified as one of the main characters of this book, and we're, you know, we're back in her sphere right now. So it started off with a great, uh, I-, I loved it, just being the coffee addict that I am, that she's sitting there with Wahir, her friend, and they're drinking calf together. And that's, for me, that's like one of the first times that I ever was introduced to the concept of of coffee in Star Wars, and I just thought that was a uh, that was fun to see, just from a coffee addict myself. And we get small moments like that where I, I remember in Heir to the Empire, Luke at one point is drinking this beverage that he says Lando told him about and yes. taught him how to make, and he's drinking hot chocolate. So we got coffee and hot chocolate in Star Wars, which is great. <laughs> to piggyback onto that, in my office, you know, there's people that even if it's straight out of the pot, they're going to put it in the microwave to get it hotter. Oh, so, <laughs> so you know, the part where it can't be too hot. Oh, wait. Yeah, it can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That got a nice laugh out of me. Yeah, so, it, was a, definitely. it was a funny moment. Definitely. So, uh, yeah, Price and well, here they're discussing uh, Ascension Week. And basically, this is a week of celebration and festivities. And it culminates on Empire Day, which is the day celebrating the birth of the Empire. And Price. And isn't it just sickening that they call it Ascension Day? <laughs> especially from our point of view where where we where we know what that whole process looked like and what empire day stands for you know with order 66 haven't happened and and the death of democracy pretty much where i know that the senate was still around until was it episode four or five i think it was episode four where the senate was uh, dissolved but palpatine still had a firm grip on the Imperial Senate after he declared it as a as an empire. So pretty much the death of democracy, the death of the Jedi, as many people knew it, and they call it Ascension Week. You know this 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 rise. Uh, You're ascending to totalitarianism. Way to go! Let's celebrate with a week of festivities and parties. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, that's it's just it's worthy of a head shake. But you know, for Price, it's worthy of you know. Oh, this, like this is an opportunity for furthering my plans, and it, you know, because it's the best excuse as Price is thinking all year for politicians and and the powerful of Coruscant to get together, and that could be in the form of parties or events or backroom conversations made possible by the parties. It, it's a week of opportunity. I think this is a great chapter for understanding the motivations and the thought processes of Arinda Price. And we'll get more into that as we go on, but we're seeing her kind of licking her lips at the thought of the best opportunity all year to uh, sure. to make these connections. But also, it, this chapter offered a bit of an insight into how a little bit of normal life on Coruscant goes, where they're they're talking about a place to stay for Ascension Week, and they're talking about how apartments are so expensive, and Price had to, at one point, like, live out of her airspeeder in the previous year for Ascension Week, and, you know, pretty much living out of her car, just because, of, you know, prices are so high, and, it, like, to kind of talking about through the economics of it, and then we also get the, the political side, where it's, they're, they're kind of navigating how to make these connections and it was kind of a glimpse into ordinary life in terms of politicians uh, if that can be considered ordinary in star wars and coruscant so i thought it was an interesting chapter that way i've got a quote here a section from this part where price is thinking about ascension week and i'm just going to read it here and I'll, i'll see what we we think about it 
And I quote, She'd started small, making conversations with other senatorial aides and assistants. But over the last couple of festivals, she'd also made contacts with a low-level journalist and the office manager from one of the mid-rim moths. This year, she'd hoped to leverage both of those one step up to their respective bosses. And I thought this was a great testament to Price playing the long game, where this isn't a matter of her making connections over the course of a few months. This is her working over the course of years. You know, if that's one year, two years, a few years, she's playing the long game here. Absolutely. It reminds me of of Thrawn in a way where she displays this patience, where she knows where she wants to be, she knows how to get there, and she's willing to let that play out even as slowly as possible, as long as she's making the right moves each step of the way. And yeah, this is, I'm just thinking in real terms, like if anyone that we know would just be comfortable, just like, oh yeah, I'll just give it a few years and then I'll get what I want instead of, you know, because we want things fast, right? You know, the instant gratification where here Arenda Price is just playing the long game, even if it means waiting years to get what she wants. Exactly right. I think it's an interesting point here where, you know, in her thought processes, she's reflecting on the connection that she's made in her role as the, the senatorial aide to ranking and also in the citizen's assistance office. And there's this quote here that I thought was very interesting, and it says, and I quote, and most unlikely of all, along the way, she'd even made a genuine friend, talking about Wahir. And what, what do you think that speaks of towards Price and also towards imperial politics, where she's so shocked that she had actually made a real friend in all of this? <laughs> yeah, I... You know, friends in the empire don't go together. You know, yeah, <laughs> it's it's just not. It's almost like a self-realization of, wow, I didn't even intend to make a friend, but I really did. Yeah, you know, and didn't even realize it. Which we can see that with Price. She's honestly shocked at, like, oh yeah, I've happened to make a genuine friend. Whoa, where we can gather, all right, yeah, friends are not there to be made. This is politics. This is about her climb to power. This is this is about climbing the ladder and getting connections and influence. And she's not in the game to make friends. Yet here, right. what here is, and it, it just leaves me wondering, uh, you know, just. If, if she'll end up taking advantage of what here at some point and also conversely um i just think it's it, it speaks a lot to imperial politics and also to price where yeah no one's really there to make friends it's all about power isn't it that's right it's all about the ladder all about the ladder we get a little bit of that in the uh, wahir and price's conversations where wahir lets her know yeah i've actually got a friend driller who lives in the an apartment complex called the sestra towers and they're a luxury apartment complex that are close to core square close to the federal district to the center of the federal district and wahir says that she and driller can take care of transportation and lodging but price will be responsible for getting them into a party an exclusive party and my question is is that normal for their friendship or do you think that just speaks to maybe like the inherently fundamentally transactional approach that everyone within imperial politics takes i think that's more the fundamentally transactional approach yeah i think they have their guests that they can bring to try to break into that inner circle or to you know use for other purposes yeah and you know, we're seeing that they're both kind of comfortable with the role that they're playing there where, yeah, you'll do this for me and then you, I'll do this for you. And it's kind of just very transactional. And you know, I wonder if just, just shallow. And it is. I mean, it's that's the thing I think that Zahn really captures well is that whole imperial idea of everybody serves a purpose for the cause. 
you know it's there's really no emotional reasoning or drive to do something other than to succeed and to gain power yeah and we see more of that from Price moving forward in the chapter. But it, it just, it, yeah, it just says a lot. And it's what we have come to expect from him, from the Imperial side of things. You know, maybe minus Captain Virgilio, minus Eli. Um, that it, it's just about the rise to power and how you get there. Um, right. This little scene ends where, uh, they, you know, they're getting ready to go. And Price mentions that, oh, yeah, well, uh, I'll get my airspeeder. And Wahir is like, oh, I said I'd provide transportation. And uh, Price says, and I quote, I know. I've also seen your airspeeder. We're taking mine. <laughs> I thought that was just a, like a oh, sick burn. <laughs> Got to get the yeah. one up there. Yeah, funny, but you kind of wonder if it's kind of an elitist thing. Like, yeah, yeah, we're not taking your Bondo buggy, you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, we, we have to look as good as we can. And quite frankly, you can do that for me. So, yeah, that's true. Funny moment, but also with Price. You know, she's not really in it for the humor, is she? She's, uh, she's always trying to have the good impression. You never know. I mean, because it is a genuine friend, Maybe. Maybe. There was a little bit of the uh, ice wall coming down some. Yeah. Uh, listeners, if you have any thought about that, was Price being a real friend or was she not? That's that's a great question. That's, that's a really good question. Uh, and I think it's just about our interpretation of the character of Arinda Price so far. Yeah, in this kind of like second scene, they're, they're on the Airbus. They're on the way to uh, the Alessandra Hotel. They've met up with uh, Wahir's friend, Driller. And he's mentioning to Price that he works with an advocacy group that petitions senators and ministers on behalf of the citizens. It seems like, oh, that's pretty pretty wholesome, right? And we get this thought from Price where she says, ah, her thoughts go to, and I quote, nothing there for her to cultivate. And this, it's like, it's a brief quote of her thoughts, nothing there for her to cultivate. But it speaks volumes, I think, about Price and her game, where everyone she meets can either serve a purpose for what she has to do. Is They can serve a purpose of being a, a good, valuable connection, or they just have zero value to her. And she's just like, all right, checking them off my list, um, where it's, it's all part of the game, right? It's all part of her goal, every interaction and meeting, where he just mentions, yeah, I'm working for an advocacy group, and she just automatically, boom, crossed off my list, nothing there for me. Which corresponds with our last chapter intro, Letting the Useless Go. Right, and she is clearly in line with Thrawn there, where she's you know grasping the useful and letting the useless fly. Uh, poor, poor driller. But yeah, that's 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 a really great connection though. The, and again, we see kind of the connections between the characters of Thrawn and Price, where they haven't met yet until maybe a few paragraphs for that later. But um, we're already seeing how their characters are very similar in in very different settings, and so. Uh, this is a small moment, but Wahir asks if anyone knows which of the parties over the week that Palpatine will be hosting. And I thought, hold up, does Emperor Palpatine party? <laughs> I just had so many questions. <laughs> does he actually host parties? Like, I, I was just, uh, I was stumped by that. It's just, a f- we, we don't really think about, you know, the, the, the Sithy, yellow-eyed, dark-robed Palpatine hosting parties. Do, do you think that Emperor Palpatine hosts, like, parties and actually has fun? Maybe that's how he got a granddaughter in episode nine. That is true. I mean, and also, listeners, if anyone has not seen Rise of Skywalker by now, that that's on you. It's been months, so that's actually... You know what? That's probably... <laughs> That's my headcanon now. <laughs> Just had a little bit too much fun at one of his parties. <laughs> and that's how Ray happened. Um, or There guess, you go. Yeah, or at least Ray's parents. Yeah. Wow. Ray's dad. That, that connects the dots right there. <laughs> um, <laughs> I did not think, I didn't even think about that. That's so good. 
<laughs> oh jeez. So so um I just thought it. Right? <laughs> it's like the, the, the inspiration we have on, on pod this is why we do the podcasts. And this is this is why I've got the guests on for these moments that I would never would have thought of on it was just me. But uh yeah, so so Price and Co. Um they're walking into the grand ballroom of the Alessandra Hotel and Driller interrupts their conversation, and you know any kind of pity I thought for Driller when Price tossed him aside like that—it's totally erased in this little. We learn a lot about how he just falls into the similar category of all the Imperials and their prejudices against non-humans. Where he's like, he says uh, to Price and Wahir when they see this group that includes Thrawn, uh, he says, "Would one of you care to explain that?" And he's pointing at Thrawn, and he says, what is he, some kind of Pantoran with an eye condition? Which is funny, like, that's, yeah, that's also funny, but it's it's also very rude, where it's it's everyone, whenever they see Thrawn in the capacity of, of Imperial power, they're always just, we're just in the capacity of, like, being a naval officer, they're always just, they just everyone's been rude to him. <laughs> he, he can't catch a break, can he? Yeah, again, that's the imperial philosophy towards aliens. I think. Yeah, and it, it really shows. And, 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 and that is a, I mean, as an aside, that's that's a difference between legends and canon. Legends, it was extremely heavy that aliens were just not part of the imperial, whereas Disney canons kind of softened that some. Mm. But it's still there. It's just not as prevalent as it was in Legend. Right? Yeah. It's more like, yeah, they're here, but we have a low-level use for them, yeah. whereas before it was no it was just, totally excluded. Yeah, not so. allowed. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. I also thought with, like, Driller thinking that Thrawn's a Pantoran, this is the, the second time in the past two chapters that we've seen someone think that Thrawn's a Pantoran. And, I like, it's so funny because, yeah, we know that no one's going to know what the Chiss are. They are this unknown species. But it's funny that it's, like, it's turning kind of, like, into an inadvertent running joke where everyone, like, when they meet Thrawn, like, oh, you're a Pantoran, right? And it's like everyone <laughs> we meets this thinks he's a Pantoran. I, just, I think that's... It's kind of funny. Also tragic. So Price is regarding this group. They see Senator Ranking, Colonel Yularen from the ISB. Uh, they see Thrawn and Eli. And she's obviously very intrigued by, okay, what's a non-human doing with a senior lieutenant plaque, right? So she's trying to insert herself into the conversation. And I've got a quote here that talks about her thought process as she's thinking how she's going to possibly get involved in their conversation. And I quote, The first thing Arinda had learned as Senator Ranking's aide was to never interrupt a conversation. The second thing she learned was how to edge herself into those conversations. In this case, the best approach was to position herself at a discreet distance outside of the group, but inside the edge of the senator's peripheral vision. Eventually, she knew he would notice her. In this instance, the wait was barely 10 seconds. And it just shows how good Price has gotten at this game. I thought that was pretty impressive. Like, just less than 10 seconds of her plan, and boom, she's already into the conversation just by positioning herself a certain way. And she just knows how to to get into those conversations. I thought that was a really pretty impressive moment for Price. Absolutely. And Ranking goes to introduce her to the group, and I thought it was another poor Eli moment where uh, Ranking says, and I quote, Senior (laughs) Lieutenant Thrawn, a rising star in the Navy, and Ensign Eli Vanto, the lieutenant's aide and translator. And it's like we get this rising star, and then oh yeah, there's just his aide and his translator. And I just get yeah, Eli got dissed right here, <laughs> big time. Yeah. But um, from their conversation, Yularen is talking to Price. Basically, yeah, it, it's confirmed from what he's telling Price that Thrawn's mission to retrieve the Tabana was successful. 
uh, so every, all the buildup from chapter nine, we find out that it was a success. They got the Tabana cylinders, and and yeah, he he got that win, which is awesome. And and Price has an interesting moment here where she's kind of quietly regarding Eli. And first of all, Price noted that Eli, and I quote, looked and sounded a little pained, as if he had no idea what he was doing here and just wanted to go home. <laughs> And I thought, same, yeah. Eli. He's just in over his head here. It's like, you know, when I read that, it's the thing that, you know, I hear quite often in different places. You're not from around here, are you? <laughs> yeah. It's another little connection with uh, that we can make with, with Eli. But there's, it's followed up, too, with this little note where Price recognizes that Eli's accent, she's able to connect it from the Outer Rim and possibly Wild Space. And she reflects on how she had worked very hard to get rid of her accent, yet there's opposed to, to Eli, who he clearly hasn't taken any steps to, to try and mask his accent, yet their Price is trying so hard maybe to just blend in with this perfect image of imperial power even if it means just just getting rid of her roots what did you think about that well i think it goes back to something that you said earlier where price is all about that ladder you know where eli is not yeah and he has certain goals but it's not about power yeah Uh, which sets him apart so much from this traditional imperial Mm -hmm. characterization that we have uh, where this had, this had been a point that was discussed in a previous episode where we could consider Price to be what Eli could become if he took certain steps. If he really tried to climb that ladder, Price would probably be what he could become. And that might mean getting rid of the accent, you know, get, kind of covering up his wild space, outer rim roots. Yet it just shows, like, like how, how you're saying, how he's just so... That's the differentiation. He's not in it for power. He's not in it to climb the ladder. He doesn't care about, you know, he might be conscious about his accent, but he's not taking those steps like Price is to just erase it and try to fit into this imperial politician mold, um, which I just, I, I thought speaks volumes about both Price and and Eli and their, and their motivations. I mean, he's true to who he is. Yeah. Uh, and apparently Price, she's willing to take on whatever identity she needs to to, to climb the ladder. Um, right, to get where she wants to go. Exactly. And there's a little moment where Colonel Yularen is speaking about Thrawn's successes where he notes that Thrawn is on Coruscant because he's in a little bit of political trouble. We can assume that he's maybe being court-martialed, but High Command is, has taken an issue with the, maybe the whole Dromedar to Bonagas situation. And I think there's props to Yularen because he says, and I quote, I think he did a remarkable job, and I want to make sure as much of the Senate knows about it as possible. And we don't know, this is the first time that we're introduced to Yularen in this book. But he's going out of his way here to make sure that Thrawn gets the credit he deserves where maybe other high-ranking officials would have tried to downplay his success or maybe to undermine him in some way. But here's Colonel Yularen kind of taking the high road and, and saying that he wants them to know Thrawn's success. He wants them to know the, the great job that Thrawn did, which I guess maybe we wouldn't have initially expected from a colonel in, in the Imperial um, ranks. Yeah, I mean, Yularen's always struck me as being a little different type of um, officer, not so much heavy-handed trying to advance, but mm. trying to do what he feels is right. Yeah. And, you know, we, we see that he's, uh, maybe we can make a connection with him and Captain Virgilio where they have this level head um, and they can recognize success where it happens. They can give credit where it's due. We move into the last bit of the chapter where 
Senator Ranking has an errand he needs Price to run for him, and he it's to deliver this data card to Moff Gotti, and that uh, Gotti would load the uh, information from the card into his data pad, download the files, and he'd return the card to Price. Simple, kind of a, a an odd process, Price mulls over, but it, it's pretty straightforward. So Gotti takes Price to his suite, uh, downloads the files in another room, and when he came back, he gives this card to Price, and Price notices that the card is different. The one she gave him was different than the one she returned to him. And he sees this, that she has this dawning realization that, oh wait, there's something different. And he says, and I quote, you notice there was something different about the data card. A shame if you'd just taken it back to him. As I say, too bad. And we can see that Price wasn't the target of what's about to unfold, but he doesn't care about that. And he proceeds to just like spray her with this, uh, powder um, that's pulsed in spice and he, he says it's a, a highly illegal drug and he says and I quote and you my dear have enough of it on you to guarantee that you will spend the rest of your life in prison what do you make of this cliffhanger the first thing that came to my mind um, it's kind of funny that the name is Gotti yeah and you kind of wonder if it's like the crime boss Gotti was an influence oh, you know interesting. John Gotti was maybe an influence <laughs> But you're, I mean, immediately when you read that, you're thinking, oh boy, he didn't kill her. So what's he got in mind? Right. What kind of entrapment is this? Yeah. It, Where's it going? It's just, she was in the wrong space at the wrong time. And yet he doesn't care about that. You know, he, she's just collateral damage. So clearly there's some kind of beef going on between him and ranking and price just got caught in the crossfire. And now she's facing life in prison. If she gets discovered with this powder on her and what a way to end the chapter. Yeah. And then once again, it just reinforces that everybody uses everybody for yeah. their own game. Yeah. And it's price as much as, she, as, as good as she is at playing the game. She clearly still has, a lot to learn. Maybe it's unfair, like, she couldn't have known that she was about to get sprayed with this illegal drug, but it just shows you that uh, that there are people, there's, like, a, a larger game going on that she just got caught in. Uh, it, it's unlucky for Price, but now, you know, she's facing prison if she, I uh, guess, discovered this drug on her. And that is, uh, that is how the chapter ends. And that's really the difference between Thrawn and Price is, as we saw in the previous chapter, Thrawn did his homework before the events happened and Thrawn would have known everything that Gotti was doing mm. before he ever entered that room. That's and I think that's the difference. That's very possible. I didn't think about that where, you know, we're talking about with the interrogation, how you know, he, he had been able to piece all these things together before he even interrogated the pirates. And it just shows it, with that kind of indirect connection, how, you know, we have this, cunning mind of price but thrawn is sets him apart himself apart from the rest even from the brilliant minds of price where he's just that next level of cunning and planning and preparation where you know maybe price has a lot to learn about this political game so yeah it may be to her cost we we don't know so that ends the chapter uh, did you have any closing thoughts before we wrap up um other than I, I love the book, so I, I can't wait to hear uh, what everybody else thinks about it as well. Yeah, it, it has been a, a great read, and to, just to re be able to revisit it in a more in-depth way, uh, I've enjoyed this ride, and uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, uh, making the time to be a part of this. Thank you so much, Chad, for coming on, for joining. 
Hey, I appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course. And I was wondering if you could, so, so you're the creator of uh, the blog Hyperspace and Holocrons. I was wondering if you could talk about that for a bit and uh, let the listeners know the work that you do and, and what they can expect if they uh, give your site a uh, visit. Uh, sure, yeah. It's on uh, WordPress. It's Hyperspace and Holocrons. I'm also on Twitter at Hyperspace and Holocrons. Basically, what I started to do was, um, as a Legends reader, I decided to read the whole Disney canon in chronological order and wanted to kind of have a record of my thoughts of each part of it that I read. So what you'll find is my honest take, you know, no matter good, bad, or indifferent. Basically, the major, uh, not plot points, but major impacts is what I want to go with. Uh, major impacts that the story makes without being spoilery. So okay. when I first discovered your your site, um, I was really blown away with because you you'd said you you go in chronological order from the entire Disney canon, which is so much. And it's so great that there is the, this resource where you're able to share your thoughts, but then also just introduce anyone who visits your site to to how vast this uh, canonical Star Wars universe is. I think it's, it is it is a, a great site. I've enjoyed re- uh, reading what you have to say about the vast number of books that you've read. Um, it's been really... Uh, I appreciate it. It's really, it's really out of my comfort. It's out of my comfort zone, to be honest. Um, I'm a financial analyst by trade, so writing is definitely not my main forte. So it was a step out of my comfort zone, and gives me a chance to give it a shot anyway yeah which which is so good and i and i think that speaks to you know how fortunate we are to have star wars where we're able to take these steps out of our comfort zones and and be inspired by this material that just is we can be so invested in it is it's so gripping where yeah something that you know you might have never thought that you'd uh, write your own blog about it yet here you are and there's just all this material that's so gripping and, and engaging and you're able to kind of just uh, take this step that you never thought you would. I think it's it's so great. And I hope that uh, listeners, if you're interested in finding out more about Chad's blog, Hyperspace and Holocrons, if you're interested in canonical Star Wars literature, give it a visit. I guarantee you'll enjoy it and his take and just how how much material is covered. Uh, it's, it's very good. I highly recommend. So thank you again, Chad, for coming along. And listeners, thank you so much for listening. Uh, if you're interested in staying up to date with the show on social media, we are on uh, Twitter at, at Outer Rim Read Pod. And if you would like to uh, keep on listening, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be Apple Podcasts or Spotify or any other platform you can think of. And feel free to give us a good review on Apple Podcasts if you're enjoying the show. Uh, good reviews on, on Apple Podcasts really help other people who are interested in shows like this and in Star Wars literature to, to find Outer Rim Reads. So I'd really appreciate a, a good review if you're enjoying the ride so far. Outer Rim Reads is created by Andrew Geha and is edited by Andrew Geha. It is produced by Andrew Geha. And we will be back in two weeks with episode six. So until then, sit back and enjoy. You can get a game of Dedrick going with the Wookiee over there. Though, fair warning, you should probably just let him win.